Market volatility returned, so we turn to the directors of research. Brian Perry from Pure Financial Advisors talks about why the markets are jumpy and whether, as President Trump said, the Fed is crazy. Larry Swedro from Buckingham Strategic Wealth has three tips on what you should do next to be like the greatest investor of all time, Warren Buffett. And Joe and Big Al answer your money questions. Can you roll a 401k into a home purchase? What's a good allocation of stocks versus bonds? Plus, find out why Joe says to contribute to your 401k plan regardless of the investment options and fees and why he thinks Susie Orman is crazy and out of her mind. Jumping on that market roller coaster now, here are Joe Anderson, CFP, and Big Al Clopine, CPA. I've got Brian Perry with me right now. Uh, he's our Director of Research at Your Financial Advisors, Chartered Financial Analyst, Certified Financial Planner. Uh, Brian, there's a reason that you're on the show. And it's not because I just like talking to you. It's not because I'm a CFA and a CFP? It could be. It could be that. But we've had a little volatility in the overall markets. We have? A little bit. Oh. It's back. Really? Yes. I hadn't noticed. So let's talk about that. Two things I want to do. I want to talk about current volatility in the overall markets. Why the heck now is this going on? And then let's recap a little bit of Q3. Okay. Um, because I want to get into the numbers a little bit more, because I think what the media he- or the media likes to put out and what individuals hear are certain indices, the Dow Jones, the S and P five hundred, the Nasdaq, uh, which are very important indices, but they're also just half the story. Mm-hmm. You know, if a globally diversified portfolio is the S and P five hundred, then uh, you know, then I'm confused. Most people, I think, should have money across the the globe. And have bonds, and have stocks, have real estate, have precious metals, and so when someone looks at their overall portfolio, if they're diversified, they might not be as happy to hear the news of their portfolio versus, let's say, the S and P. And on the flip side, they might be really happy when the S and P tanks. So it, we're kind of running into this weird dichotomy in a sense of, all right, well, how can I be happy as an investor? First of all, <laughs> I need it. I mean, I need to figure out what my expectations are. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think expectations are key, um, and I agree with you that globally diversified portfolios make a heck of a lot of sense. Um, I'd push back a little on precious metals as being an investment. Uh, not a big fan there for reasons that we can go into later. Um, yeah, I, I think it's all about expectations, and in my experience, people want relative performance on the upside. On the upside, they want to outperform whatever index or whatever their neighbor is getting. And then on the downside, they don't care about relative performance anymore. They want absolute performance. And so. I always try to move it away from performance to some arbitrary benchmark, which is what the S&P 500 is, and back to performance to plan. But if I look at the S&P 500, that gives me a good, decent indication of what the hell's going on in the markets, right? Well, it depends on what market you're talking about, right? I mean, we're talking about the and S&P I meant to 500. Say heck there, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> when we're talking about the S&P 500, we're talking about big U.S. companies. And in fact, most of that index is about 50 or 100 really large global companies, your Amazons, your Apples, your Googles, those kind of things. Um, there are times when they dominate the market, and there are times when they do really well, and there are times when other sectors are in favor. And so if you're invested in smaller U.S. companies, right, there's thousands of companies that aren't Netflix and Amazon and Google. If you're invested overseas in a Nestle, a Toyota, a Unilever, if you're invested in emerging markets, if you're invested in bonds, which for a lot of people in the last couple of days, all of a sudden the bonds that they hated last quarter when stocks were doing great in the last couple of days, they love their bonds, right? If you're invested in all those things, the S&P 500 tells you nothing about how your portfolio should be doing. When you look at the S&P this year, um, what percentage, and I don't need to put you on the spot, and I probably 
you probably don't have the exact answer for this, but what percentage do you believe um, the the ten percent, let's say, growth or whatever the S and P is right now, is, is based on the Fang stocks? Yeah. I mean, how much? I mean, it, it's got to be around 30, 40% of that overall return is based on what? Four companies, four or five companies. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's somewhere in that 30 to 50% range is a handful or 10 companies. And that's actually not that unusual. When, when you look at historical performance in general, most years, a handful of stocks drive market performance. To me, I, there's two takeaways that people have from that. And, and mine is maybe different than a lot of people's. A lot of people say, oh, well, the FANG stocks are driving market performance. I want more of the FANGs. That's all I want to own. I take it as if in any given year, in general, a small subset of stocks are driving market performance, I want to own a heck of a lot of stocks because next year it may be a different handful of stocks that are driving market performance. So Thursday we saw, or uh, Wednesday, um, saw almost a 1,000-point drop in the Dow, about 3.5% roughly. Uh, that's one of the biggest drops we've seen in quite some time. Yep. It's not necessarily abnormal. Um, you know, you hear the 1,000-point or 800, 900-point drop, and people tend to freak out. But then you put in percentages, it's like, well, a couple percent, It's yeah, it's, a, it's, it's bad, but it's not, you know, 1,000 points 10 years ago would have been devastating. Well, yeah, you need to keep the numbers in perspective, right? I've done the math, and this is going back a couple years, but if the um, Dow grew at 7% between now and the year 2100, right, so when people's grandkids are, are a little bit older, you'd have a 6 million level on the Dow. And we'd be talking about, oh, yeah, the Dow was up 150,000 points yesterday or something like <laughs> right, that. And right, right. It, it sounds absurd. And so I think putting it back in percentages makes a lot more sense. Yeah, you're down 3 3.5%. NASDAQ was down more. It was down about 4 4 and a quarter. Um, think of October 1987. Stocks were down almost 25%. Right? That's a major correction right there. So what was the reason behind it? I mean, we, we can. It's, it's very difficult to predict. But I think we can be, you know, what, uh, Monday Quarterback, what, what the hell? Armchair, more, armchair quarterback. Monday afternoon quarterback. Monday morning quarterback. What the hell? Yeah. And I'm a sports fan. <laughs> this is God. this is ridiculous. Anyway, we can. I'm, I'm going to talk about sports. So we can look at the past and reflect and say, okay, well, this is why this happened. Um, I wish we could say this is going to happen, but it's very difficult to do that. So why did it happen? Yeah. And why? What can we anticipate? What can we guess? Um, in the future. Well, here's the thing. If let's say a year from now we were looking back and stocks had this is not a prediction, but stocks had gone into a nasty bear market and we had a recession. And you looked back and people would say it was obvious that we had a bear market and a recession because we we're in an environment of tighter monetary policy, slowing economic growth, higher interest rates, slowing global trade, um, tariff wars, oil prices doubled, and all of that happened in the midst of a really long bull market with full valuations. So obviously we were going to have a bear market, right? I think that's some of the reasons why stocks fell. That being said, that doesn't guarantee, just because it seems obvious that we need to have a bear market, that doesn't guarantee that we will, because the flip side of the argument is you have a relatively strong U.S. economy, you have corporate profits that have been fantastic, you have tax cuts that are still stimulating the economy, you have policy that, although on the monetary front is tighter than it was, it's still relatively neutral, at, at, you know, it's not t particularly tight. And, and so I think that speaks to the binary nature of outcomes in that things are always obvious in retrospect. Unemployment's still really low? Yeah, exactly, right? And so it's like, yeah, in 2008, in retrospect, it's obvious that the market was going to crash, but at the time it wasn't so obvious to everybody, right? So that rearview mirror always seems fantastic and, and makes things look really clear. But if you're looking on a go-forward basis, who knows what's going to happen? And again, I think I can make a compelling argument for why stocks will continue to fall sharply, but I think I could also make a compelling argument for why this is a time to be invested. And again, then move past the U.S. too. That's just in the U.S. If we're looking globally, 
valuations in a lot of other markets are attractive relative to U.S. stocks. Um, let me quote our president. The Fed is crazy. What, you're a bond guy, right? You understand a little bit about interest rates. Are they uh, crazy? You know, when, when you throw something out there like the president and crazy in the same sentence, I could get in so much trouble by uh, going in various different directions. But, but I'll stick to bonds. Um, you know, I, I think that the Fed is probably doing what they need to do. In my opinion, if there was any craziness, was that they were probably too low for too long and that they took a little longer than maybe they should have to normalize interest rates. So uh, all the good things that you just said about the economy. So now the Fed is raising interest rates quite substantially if you just take a look at the past, what, six, eight months, yeah. right? What's the 10-year right now? Almost three and a half? Yeah, three and a quarter. Uh, three and a quarter. So that's the highest it's been? In- yeah, it's the highest it's been since 2011, but it's still pretty low historically. Sure. And, and, and I think if you look at kind of relative to inflation and stuff, we're probably, in my opinion, about where we should be on the 10-year treasury. I, I have difficulty seeing it going, let's say, above 4%, and I don't think it should be at one5 I think somewhere in that 25 to 3.5% range is probably reasonable if you look at the fundamentals. What, what worries me is, with the president calling the Fed crazy, is I've had a longstanding fear of the Fed coming under more political pressure. Now that it's so transparent and there's so much social media coverage and everybody, you know, 30 years ago, nobody knew what the Fed was or who the Fed chairman was. And, and now you get unions pl- uh, picketing outside of Fed meetings. And historically, if you look around the world, when politicians get involved in monetary policy, you wind up with higher inflation. And so longer term, I think that's a concern. Let's do a little bit more of a recap um, of Q3. What happened? What was good? What was bad? Um, and and then we can talk a little bit about maybe what are some ideas that people can do to position themselves maybe a little bit more defensively. I think we've gotten complacent. I think recency bias is alive and well of, hey, what's doing well in the past will continue to do, but now we see some volatility. Maybe that will spark people to actually take action on their portfolios. Yeah, I would agree. The time to position your portfolio is always before a particularly large correction, right? And Although people get nervous because we haven't seen it recently, and they think that Wednesday's 800-point down move, 3.5%, was a large decline. In reality, we're down about 4 or 5% from the highs, and we're still up on the year. And so this has not been a particularly volatile market, if you look over any kind of reasonable time frame. I mean, it's almost been dead quiet. It, it really has. I mean, now, 2018 hasn't been as quiet as 2017. 2017 was just a straight move higher with record low volatility. 2018, we have had a variety of corrections. And what I find interesting about 2018 is that it's really showed the schizophrenic nature of market participants in the sense that late January into February, the Dow fell almost 10% based on fears that the economy was overheating. Then if you look at March, we fell nearly 10% based on fears that the economy would slow. And now again here, we're falling on fears that I don't know if people are afraid the economy is going to overheat because inflation is a little bit higher or if they're afraid that the economy is going to slow down because of trade wars and tariffs, I think it's a little bit of both. And so markets are all over the place, causing a little bit more volatility. Well, I mean, what is inflation right now? You know, two and a quarter percent, something like that. So still historically low. Um, there's a number of forecasts calling for it to go a little bit higher. But is that the CPI that you're referring to? Yeah. What's the real inflation? People say it's like 18. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think it depends. I mean, do you want to eat and drive and stuff? Obviously, oil prices have gone up a lot. The, the reason, and we get this question all the time, is why does the Federal Reserve or why do economists talk about core CPI or core inflation without food and energy. And the joke is nobody needs to eat or or drive, right? The reason they do that is because energy prices are really volatile and food prices are really volatile. A hurricane or a crop report can can change those quickly. 
the Federal Reserve that believes that there's a six-month lag in monetary policy. So if they raise interest rates or cut interest rates, it takes six months to trickle through to the real economy. Because of the volatility of those food prices, if they were constant react, reacting to, let's say, the most recent hurricane, they would be doing monetary policy that by the time it took effect, the effects of whatever prompted the spike, let's say, in energy prices would have far, far since dissipated. So there's fears on inflation. There's fears on China. Mm-hmm. What's China going to do? <clears throat> Who knows? Uh, I think China sometimes, the old Winston Churchill quote about Russia, about a riddle inside of an enigma, inside of a puzzle or, or whatever, to paraphrase that, is similar to China. Um, <laughs> it's really hard to know what is going on inside the, the country, um, particularly because I, I, my belief is with their economic statistics, a lot of times they pick a number they want and then they figure out how to make the data fit it. Um, but by all accounts and a lot of anecdotal evidence is that these tariff wars are beginning to hurt China and that there is concern inside of China about the effect. Um, trade is more important to them than it is to the United States. And so my personal belief is nobody wins a trade war, but to the degree that there are relatively larger losers, I think that in the long run, China is going to suffer a little bit more. The U.S. is actually a pretty closed economy. As, as a percentage of GDP, we don't trade that much with the rest of the world because we're such a big economy and such a big country and we produce a lot of what we need. So in the long run, I think the idea is that we'll try to, quote, win the trade war, um, but everybody suffers when this happens. So rising interest rates, rise inflation, and then China. Anything else that's causing this, or is that about it? (laughs) You know, I I think the other thing is, right, we've had markets that are relatively fully valued, and you mentioned earlier the S&P 500, right, the the big U.S. stocks and those technology stocks. They had done really, really well for a number of years, right, where – some of them were being priced not so much on earnings or fundamentals, but more on hopes and dreams. Right. Reminiscent, not quite as bad, I don't think, as the 1990s. But you remember the 1990s, people were, well, we think this company at some time will make money, so let's value it at 100 times some mythical earnings. It, it's not that bad these days. But still, when you look internationally and some other sub-asset classes, things are not nearly so expensive. So value stocks, for instance, are significantly less expensive relative to historical norms than growth stocks. Um, international stocks in developed countries are less expensive relative to historical norms. And emerging market stocks are quite cheap. They've been cheap for a while, and they've had a horrible year, and now they're they're very cheap. But the problem is is that no one wants to buy stocks while they're cheap. We want to buy everything else while they're cheap. We want to buy more expensive because it's based on performance. So what cheap means is that it has lagged in performance. And so we want to buy yesterday's winners today. And I heard on Wednesday when the market blew up is that Vanguard – totally crashed, yeah. right? And, and, and Vanguard is what? Mo- mostly d- do-it-yourself investors. And so they're going in and they're like, oh my God, yeah. I got to sell. Like, what the hell's going on here? I'm, you know, and I think that's always going to be the problem yeah. is that you have international stocks that are down, but no one wants to buy them. Let's buy um, um, American stocks, which are great, but because we're at all-time highs, but then we see a, a 3% drop and then one of the largest custodians website blows up because and they of course they're not saying because everyone wanted to sell it was just like oh there was a china clip or chip in there (laughs) well i mean go to the mall well nobody goes to the mall anymore but when people used to go to the mall all right the wednesday before thanksgiving it's empty and on friday people are beating each other up to get in the doors because people love a sale financial markets everybody hates a sale and i can't tell you how many times somebody said to me i'm waiting for stocks to go up so they're less risky and I'm baffled by that statement. If you think about it, the value of an investment is a function of the price you pay and what you sell it for. The less you pay, the more certain you are to get a good return and the more likely you are to get a high return. So when stocks are on sale, you're going to have a far more likelihood of getting better returns and they're far safer. 
I, I think emotion comes into play so much in this, though, that the way to do it is to have some sort of discipline, to have a strategic allocation and then rebalance in some sort of disciplined way, because what that does is that makes you sell what's done well and then buy what hasn't done as well. Always great stuff, Brian. One last quick question. Private equity. What do you think? You know, I think... It's a different <coughs> world, right? I mean, I think a lot of private companies don't necessarily want to go public. And so, what do you think? You know, I, I think private equity probably has a place in the financial markets. If you look 20 years ago, there were 7,000-something U.S. public companies. Now there's about 3,500. So there's a lot more companies staying private. Um, the, the problem is illiquidity and then large initial investments. So for investors with a higher net worth that are okay locking up a portion of their money and can afford to get in there, um, it, it can make sense. The one thing I would say is that that space is very crowded right now. So on a cyclical basis, I, I think people would want to evaluate whether or not this is the time to, uh, to pile into private equity. There's a lot of money chasing a finite amount of deals. More on the volatility of the market momentarily when Larry Swedro joins us. In the meantime, get your side hustle on. Retiring in a gig economy is the subject of this week's Your Money, Your Wealth TV show, and you can watch it and subscribe at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. New episodes post every Sunday. And now that we're counting down to the end of the year, make sure you're prepared for tax time. Quick special offer at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to download our free 2018 tax checklist. It's perfect timing, Alan. Boy, it, this couldn't be better timing. You know, we drew crazy, this up about a month ago. A crazy and then, market this week. And then Larry and, uh, must have called and said, you know what, let's just get, have some volatility <laughs> so we got something to talk about. <laughs> and so we've got someone that knows what he's talking about Exactly. Ask, right? we got Larry Swedger on the line. He's principal and director of research at Buckingham Strategic Wealth. Larry, it's always great to have you. How you been? My pleasure. Just came back from a nice two-week tour in New England. So nice and relaxed. And what do I come back to? Yeah, right? <laughs> I guess volatility is back. It certainly looks that way. And I think the most important thing for people to have is this perspective. They probably think, and I know this is true because as director of research for, in effect, 140 firms, I get calls immediately when we get days like this. Uh, so it's because the advisors we work with are getting calls from their clients. They tend to think this is highly unusual a move of 3% plus in a day, but the evidence is that that is not the case. And a great example is this. I would say most people think that stock returns are kind of normally distributed. That means you get big events like these in the tails very infrequently. It's like a hurricane like Michael happens once every 100 years. We don't get one every month or something like that, or every year even. But it turns out that if stock returns were normally distributed, we would have had about 58 or so of those days in a 100-year period, and yet we've had over a 1,000 of them, or more than 17 times as frequently. And if you raise that hurdle to four and a half percent, you would expect just six times in 100 years or so. And yet we've had 366 of them in that period or 60 times as great. And to me, the most compelling stat is if you were looking at a move of more than seven percent, you would expect it once every 300,000 years. And we've had it occur about 50 times. So these are really important numbers to keep in mind because it tells us that stocks are really risky. Big moves like this happen frequently. 
and your plan better include the certainty that you're going to have to live with them often because otherwise you'll panic and sell because you took too much risk. Nothing really happened, it seemed like. What the pundits are saying, maybe it's the the fear of more interest rate hikes and there could be China. But didn't we already know all of this? And so why now just drop a thousand points and, you know, five some odd percent in two days? Well, the answer is pretty simple. First of all, you're right. There was absolutely no news whatsoever. Unlike sometimes markets drop sharply because of bad news. 911 would be a perfect example. Lehman Brothers collapse, the oil embargo of 1974. Those are big events that obviously have negative impacts and can explain sharp moves. On the other hand, there's no way we would have had, as I mentioned, over a thousand times events that have occurred. That's 10 times a year on average in a 100-year period where you get reasons for markets to move over 3%. In this case, there was absolutely no news. Everything that the pundits have pointed out, trade war risks with China, rising interest rates. Well, the Fed had been saying they were going to raise rates four times this year, likely three next year. Everyone knew that for months. The yield curve had already anticipated that. The problem is that we as human beings have this hunger and desire and need to try and find explanations or find patterns when events can be purely random in nature. We see this when an investor looks at some money manager and sees three years of great returns and think that means something, when it's highly likely that's purely a random outcome. The same thing happens here. I used to run a foreign exchange trading room for Citicorp, one of the largest foreign exchange traders in the world. And we used to get calls, of course, from the media when we had big moves in the foreign exchange market. And we would laugh about it because some days we'd come in in the morning and write up a brief, here's five bullet points for why the dollar went up, and here's five went down, and whichever way it went, we would read it. <laughs> now, there was no explanation often to explain things, but people have this need. And literally, as you said, there was no news. Markets happen. Who knows why? It's easy to try to explain things after the fact, but often there are no good explanations. Yeah, you, Larry, you did an analysis recently about 5% drops over the last eight years. And it's interesting. I think our emotions would tell us, okay, the recovery's coming, time to get out of the market. But yet, in your research, at least recent research, that's not been the case. The next six and 12 months have actually been pretty good. Yeah, I look back just to provide a reminder to investors who are tempted to panic and sell here to see, well, let's just look back since the great financial recession ended in March of 2009, the bear market ended there. I looked to see how many months we had where losses were at least 5% in the S&P. That's roughly what the loss was over the two days. So we had six of those episodes. The average loss was a little over 6%. The worst loss was in May of 2010, and it was 8%. On average, the next six months returned 16%. That's not per annum, that's outright. So that's 50% more, or 60% more, than the average compound annual return. And the return over the next 12 months was 25%. 
obviously two and a half times the 90-year average. And what's interesting is two of these episodes occurred back to back. So May 2010, with a loss of 8%, was followed by June with a loss of 5 And yet, if you started from June 1, the return over the next six months was still plus 9.5%. We saw the same thing in August of 2011. Uh, that was down 5.4. And September of 2011 was down 7. Still, if you start six months from August, knowing that September was down another 7, the next six months was still up 13, and the next year was up 18. When you look at evidence like that, it's no wonder Warren Buffett advises people to never try to time the market. But if you can't avoid timing it, at least be fearful when others are greedy and be greedy when others are fearful. You know, Larry, with this little shakeup, people do get fearful. But I think good things happen here. I think there's been a lot of complacency with people's investment strategy over the last several years, where they might not really realized how much risk that they were taking. Uh, maybe they were chasing returns, and then all of a sudden you kind of see the sharp dip, uh, because memories are short. It wasn't that long ago where the market imploded, but then we get overconfident, and then all these biases come out, and then when you see that short dip, maybe it might motivate people to really take a second look at their overall portfolio to make sure it's really doing what it should be doing for their specific goals. Yeah, you raise a very good point. Now, now meaning any point in time, is always a good time to review your investment strategy, taking a look to make sure that you haven't become overconfident, make sure you don't have more risk in your portfolio than you have the ability to take because of job security or your investment horizon has now gotten shorter, you're getting closer to retirement maybe, your stomach acid is rumbling. You thought you could deal with drops like we had in the last two days, but now you can't sleep. Even if you didn't panic and sell, life's too short not to enjoy it. And lastly, the last 10 years have been so good that many people have earned returns well above their expected returns. So now they have much less need to take risks because they're much closer to their goals than they expected. And so what we do on a regular basis is run Monte Carlo simulations, and we like to see at least, say, a 90% odds of success, and maybe someone 10 years ago needed to be 70% equities to get that, and today they only need 50. Well, we want them to take those chips off the table so they can enjoy their life and not worry about bear markets. This is certainly a good time to do it. I'll add one other important thing. Whenever you get drops like this, it's really important to take advantage of them, not only by rebalancing the portfolio, but also looking for opportunities to tax loss harvest. Because, for example, what happened just in 2009, we had massive losses in 8 and early 09. We were harvesting losses, having Uncle Sam share the pain, especially short-term losses which are more valuable. But if you waited till the end of the year, which is what I know many individuals do it on a calendar basis and advisors do it once a year, we, didn't, don't, we, we check daily, literally, to see if there are opportunities. And you want to harvest those losses because by the end of the year, they may be gone and you miss that opportunity 
to save in some cases thousands or even tens of thousands of dollars in taxes. So great opportunity to re-examine your investment policy statement and also rebalance and where opportunities exist, harvest losses, especially short-term ones. Hey, in your blog, has the bear awakened from its hibernation? You listed several different things just to continue to educate people that, that stocks are risky. You start out with the Cape 10 is still a little bit high at 31. Not necessarily saying it's overvalued, but it could be highly valued. It's highly valued yeah. anyway. <laughs> yeah. Stock valuations are lower and bond yields are now a bit higher than, say, they were a year ago. The bad news for anyone investing today is that stock returns are now much lower on a forward-looking basis than historical. On top of that, bond yields are much lower and therefore expect the returns are lower. I think in your blog, Larry, you say that I'm not selling stocks and I bet you Warren Buffett is not either. Yeah, exactly. You know, one of the things I, I always tell people, like, you know, I give them the academic evidence, so it's not my opinion about things. And we've discussed what the history says about stock returns after periods of bad returns, like a month or so. Often, I can't overcome that no matter how much evidence you show. Somehow this time is different. So what I learned to do is to ask the following question. So, Joe, who do you think was the greatest investor of all time? Larry Swedrow. <laughs> <laughs> I won't take credit for that, but I would say Warren Buffett. And I, 99% of investors will say the same thing. So my next question, Joe, is this: Since you respect Buffett, you can't invest like him because you don't have billions like he does, and you can't negotiate with Goldman Sachs. But if he offered you advice, do you think you should take it? Yes, sir. Well, he says never try to time the market. Ignore all gurus forecasting because they don't tell you anything about where the market's going. And you can't stop yourself from market timing, as we said earlier, be a buyer when everyone else is selling and not panicking. So if Buffett isn't selling, what do you know that Buffett doesn't or you just think you're smarter than him? And I've learned if you ask it that way, people maybe begin to think a little differently can help them take the emotions out. And then I go to the point, well, if you are feeling nervous, then really we need to sit down and review your plan, assuming you even have one. It may be that you're just taking too much risk and it's obvious because you're not sleeping well. Let's see by running a Monte Carlo analysis, can we reduce your equity exposure and build a portfolio that can still give you that high chance of achieving your goals without as much equity risk. And we all know that even if you're 65, you probably now need to plan on 30 years at least for your horizon. Well, in the last 36 years, we've had three drops of at least 40% in the global markets. So you need to plan on at least three more of them. And we want to make sure your portfolio and your stomach can withstand that. Great stuff, Larry. You can check out Larry's stuff at ETF.com. Larry, thanks so much, my friend. It's been a long time, and, and I really appreciate your insight, your thoughts, and most importantly, your time. My pleasure. Uh, Joe, I'll close with this. Every week I take a tennis clinic trying to get better, and my pro says, Larry, you're the reason I never have to worry about retiring. 
Uh, you keep making the same mistakes over and over again. And unfortunately, most investors keep repeating the mistakes. So there'll always be uh, room for great advice like you and your team provide. You know, I have a similar story. I have a golf lesson every Saturday morning. And I swear to you, I think he's just messing up my swing so he has job security <laughs> because I just keep coming back and I still shoot the same crappy game. But Well, uh, you're his job security <laughs> just like I'm my tennis pro's job security. Uh, that's Larry Swedrow. For a transcript and links to everything mentioned in this podcast, check out the show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com, which is also where you can subscribe and listen to the show for free on demand. Next week, today's show financial editor and host of the Her Money podcast, Jean Chatsky, joins us to talk about her newest project specifically for women. Now, our email bag is stuffed with money questions. Send yours into info at purefinancial.com like Lee from Atlanta, Georgia did. Lee says this. I have a question. Thinking of rolling my 401k into the purchase of a home. I am 59 and a half, so my question is, will there be any taxes on that move? Could that money be transferred from the 401k office right into the loan? This will be a purchase of a new home, if that is helpful. Uh, Lee from Atlanta, appreciate the email. Um... I think he's confused a little bit. He's like, there's a rollover where you can roll over a 401k into an IRA. Correct. He's saying, hey, I want to buy a house. Can I just roll my 401k into um, a loan? Right. And the answer, Lee, is no. Uh, I'll just tell you that because it's a different it's a different kind of thing notice how i looked in the camera that was, that was yeah good. just for lee that was good. anyway <laughs> so anyway so you're right joe you can you can roll over a 401k to an ira and not pay taxes mm-hmm. right you can roll if, if you will we call it 1031 exchange when you have a rental property and roll that gain into another property via 1031 exchange but this is two different things you can't take a 401k and roll it into your your home. And avoid tax. And avoid tax. So what happens is the the entire uh, distribution is taxable. And we see people make this mistake. They think it's maybe because it's a, they rolled it to a different investment. They don't have to pay tax. Right. It's, oh, okay, well, I'm buying a house. I have mutual funds. Now I want to buy a home. Right. It's an, I'm not spending it. I'm not taking it to the, you know, the, the casino or the bar or, you know, going to the kids at Disneyland. I'm actually buying an asset. Yeah. So why should I have to pay tax? Sure. Right. Um, it's a, well, first, it's a personal use asset. Yeah. Well, that's one thing. <laughs> but we, and sometimes people think, all right, well, yeah, I'll pay a little bit of tax. I'm in the 15, per, or now let's just say I'm in the 12% tax bracket. Yeah. I'm going to take a $200,000 distribution from my retirement account and then put a down payment on this house. Right, and then I'll put, and then they're calculating the tax. Well, twelve percent on two hundred thousand. Oh, that's not too bad. Right, but it doesn't work that way. <laughs> no, because you get thrown into a higher tax bracket, and so not all of it's taxed at twelve percent, and then you got state taxes on top of that. Right, and, and then the, guess and, what happens the next year when they take that money out? They're not automatically taxed. So Lee, don't do this. So you're taking the money out, you're going to buy your house, and you're moved in, and you're loving it. You're like, oh, honey, we got our primary residence. Isn't this great? And then April 15th of next year, you do your taxes. Yeah, you're doing TurboTax, and, right. and you're thinking there's something wrong with this program right. because it, it says I owe $80,000 of tax. Exactly. And it's like, well, how, how do we owe so much tax? Well, because there was a 1099R 
for, as a full distribution from your retirement account as income. And then that gets plugged into the situation. Now you owe 80, 100,000, yeah. 200, whatever it is. 500,000, whatever sure, the number whatever, is. how much money you're pulling out of your yeah. retirement account. Right. And then where are you going to go to pay that tax? Yeah, because you already used your 401k. You're selling your home. So, yeah. <laughs> I hope you had a good year. Right. right? Or you're, you're in default. I mean, really bad things can happen. Yeah. Because the, the numbers you see on your 401k statement is not all yours. It's not all your money. Yeah, you've got a partner. The, and and part of the confusion here is he's thinking, I'm waited till 59 and a half. So I'm clean. So there's no penalty. Right. There's no 10% penalty. But you still have to pay taxes on what you pull out. All right, Lee. Don't do it. Uh, Cindy from San Diego, she writes in, I just started a new job, and I'm not pleased with the 401k options. I'd like to know if I should participate or if there's any alternative that you'd recommend. This 401k includes a $90 administration fee and only 1% employer matching if I contribute 10%. I'm already maxing out my Roth IRA. I can afford to invest about 600 bucks a month. Uh, at the moment, that's almost 10% of my salary. But expect that to go down starting next year. What do you recommend? Um, well, thanks a lot again, uh, Cindy, for the email. And Alan, why don't you start I'll this start? Thing? Okay. Yeah. Well, Cindy, so I, I guess I, I don't really know what the options are. Maybe they're not quite as bad as you think. I, I, I guess there's still a match. It's not a great match, but there still there is a match. And if you put in 10%, then you're getting a 1% match. So that's something. Uh, so I, I guess I'd, I'd want to look at that a little more deeply. Uh, sometimes people think they don't have good investment choices because they only have 20 choices, but some of them may be great. But let me go down another path, which is maybe the investment choices are terrible, right? And so she's already maxed out her Roth IRA. So then you, you would look at uh, other investments outside of a retirement account. You don't get a tax deduction, but then you can. it's called a non-qualified account or non-retirement account. Brokerage account. Brokerage account, whatever you want to call it. And then you invest generally for growth if you're working, going to be working for a while. And when you invest for growth, that generally kicks off uh, capital gains when you actually sell those positions or maybe get some qualified dividends. It's relatively tax efficient. And that, assuming that you're really right, and these are terrible terrible options, I would just invest outside of retirement. Um, Cindy, I don't care how bad the investment options are. I don't care if they are 2% in fees. I don't care if you don't get a match. F- put the 600 bucks in the 401k. Yeah, It's out of sight, out of mind. You check exactly a box. Right. It's so easy. And you're going to end up with a lot more money. Guaranteed. Yeah. And, oh, par- I, and part of the problem- Quasi-guaranteed. Yeah, yeah, you can't guarantee anything. Compliance. I mean, we've argued about this before. If I have a four hundred one k plan and you don't, right, you're going to go open your brokerage account. You're going to put six hundred dollars in your brokerage account. I'm going to open up my four hundred one k plan and I'm going to say, all right, ten percent of my income, boom, just let it go. And then I get my paycheck and then I'm going to spend it. You, on the other hand, have to write a check every single month of that six hundred dollars to that brokerage account. Guess what happens next month? Yeah, I don't write it because you know what the car broke down. Or and even worse is the car really broke down, and I got to use all those assets to pay off the car, right? Pay the, the repair, right? And so now I've got nothing. Well, no, you're on Amazon and you're buying new shoes. Oh, well, it looks like I got six hundred dollars in <laughs> right. this account, right? Right, and you're like, hey, you know what? Should I save? Should I not? But if you pay yourself first, out of sight, out of mind, because humans are not great at money, right? And if I could just get that money out of my hands and put it into a retirement account and let that thing go and, and select at the, the, the very best options within the plan, $90 
administration fee, and I don't care what the fees are internally. To be honest with you, this is just my opinion. This is not advice. If I were Cindy, that's what I would do. Yeah, well, I would do the same, and, and I've got to believe that they're not quite as bad as what she thinks. But uh, you do get a match out of sight, out of mind. That's a really good point, because when it's in your brokerage account, you can grab you that grab money it, yeah. anytime you, you want, and life does happen, and people grab that money sure. all the time. Sometimes they grab their 401k money, and they shouldn't. But right. at least it's in a 401k, and you're less likely to do that. Another thing, Cindy, what I would recommend is talk to your HR department. If it's that bad, or talk to the, you know, if it's a small company, talk to the the president or the CEO or whoever and just say, hey, you know, I'm taking a look at these options and I've done some research and it's it's not that They're great. Not good. I, I, want, I want Vanguard or I want some low cost yeah, investments. Could, could, you know, yeah. is there something that we can do here? Maybe, and, you know, at the, the, the company has a fiduciary responsibility if they have a 401k plan. True. On the flip side, though, this is what drives me nuts is that. There's so much cost in administration for small businesses to establish a 401k plan. There's what only maybe 40 percent of all companies that have a plan. Yeah, just like because that. of the rhetoric, the red tape, and the legalese that go around uh, around it. Is that like, all right? Well, I'm going to offer a 401k plan, but I don't want to sp- as an, an employer that only has maybe a handful of employees. I don't want to spend ten, twenty thousand dollars administrating this thing, get a TPA, file fifty five hundreds, and do all this stuff. So what they do is they find a, let's say, a mutual fund company, and they'll say, "Hey, Mister or Mrs. Employer, we'll set up this four hundred one k plan for you. It's not going to cost you any out of pocket, but you know what? How we're going to get paid is that it, it's just going to be a little bit higher administration fees in there, but you have a, a, a plan, and all your employees can participate in the plan. I mean, for a couple of little, you know, $90 administration fee for, for me to have, I, I'll pay that all day long, you know, but it's like people want their cake and eat it too. So anyway, Cindy, um, that was not reflected towards you. I think uh, you're a wonderful person. We did. And I would, I uh, would go with the 401k plan. Dwayne, Denver, Colorado, the high, high city. Mile, hi. mile high. Yeah. And he starts you. it with high. Hi. <laughs> Hello, Dwayne. Um, I'm 53 years old, looking to retire at age 60, married, wife, 50. We currently have $1.5 million in retirement accounts. I envision needing $100,000 a year. My question is, given those broad parameters, what would be a current or uh, appropriate amount of bonds and stock allocation both now and the next five years? Also, we have only uh, what remaining home debt of about one hundred thirty-five thousand dollars, which will be paid in full in seven years. Thanks. All right. Uh, so Dwayne's fifty-three. Great question. Looking so, to retire at age sixty. 60. He's got one point five million dollars. He wants one hundred thousand dollars from that account. What should be his stock bond allocation? That's a great question. So I'm just kind of sort of paraphrase. So it looks like Dwayne, you're planning on having your mortgage paid off. I guess by the time you retire, which is fantastic. So, and I don't know. You, you, Pretty you, good with math. Yeah, I'm. It's really. It's, I'm right with it today. <laughs> <laughs> so, he says I envision needing a hundred thousand dollars. I'll assume that's that's over and above, or that's not including the mortgage because the mortgage will be paid off. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make that assumption right now. What I don't know, Dwayne, is how much you're saving currently. So you got a million and a half, and and so the million and a half. Let me see your calculator real quick. Yeah, you, you, you calculate while I'm talking. But a million and a half, and if you're, let's just say you're maxing a 401k, $24,500, and maybe Joe put in 6 or 7%, something like that. What, what does that come out to be? So if he's got one five, 
and he's got seven years. Yeah. Let's say he gets 6% on the money, and he's okay. saving 24.5. Yeah. All righty. Yeah, let's go with that. And then, uh, so that's $2.4 bucks. $2.4 million. Okay. Look at that, Dwayne. We just got you $2.4 million. All you got to do is max out your 401k and get 6% over the next seven years. Yeah, and we sort of we sort of want your and distribution. You take 4% on that, that's 98000 bucks. Yeah, we'll call it $100. we will we'll round it. Boom. Yeah, and then there you go. What and stock bond allocation does he need? Well, I think... He can play conservative now because Could. let's say if he if he targets a six percent rate of return, you know, then he's home free. Now, if he has pensions and Social Security, that's going to be gravy on top of that. But he's sixty years old when he retires, so he's got to bridge that gap. Sure, right. So he's got to look from sixty to sixty-seven potentially to get Social Security, or if he's going to push it out to seven or right. to seventy. So, so based upon our assumptions, I would personally would probably do at sixty forty, sixty percent stocks, forty percent bonds. Yeah, I think that's right in line. I, I think anywhere between forty percent stocks and sixty percent. I, I agree. You probably you probably don't need. More than that in terms of stocks, and and if you want to play it safer, go fifty fifty. And I'm not even opposed to forty percent stocks, sixty percent bonds. Uh, but I agree, somewhere in that range, based upon what we know about your situation. Right, because he doesn't have to shoot for the moon here. Right, he's already done a really good job. He's fifty three years old. Wife's fifty. They got a million and a half saved, and that's not even including social security or pension. So th- a lot of this, as you say, Joe, might be gravy. Right. And so I think, Dwayne, congratulations. I would not say, all right, well, 100% stock portfolio or 100% bond portfolio. I think you still need um, risk in the portfolio to get a target rate of return. You need 6%. Yeah, and something else you might think about is if you want to go 60% stocks now as you get right to retirement, you might dial it back a little bit, maybe 50-50. Maybe forty percent stock, sixty, but you still need stocks because chances are you're going to live into one of you is going to live into your nineties. So that's thirty years. Right. So it's it's and that's where people make mistakes, Joe, is they think, okay, I retire, so I can't take risk anymore because I can't make the money back. Well, yeah, you definitely want to make sure you have a portfolio that you can draw upon in bad markets. But the fact of the matter is, you may live for another three decades or more, and that's your time horizon. It's not like one year; it's thirty years or more. Right. And with the amount of information that we have, I, I think that's the best way to go. Our advice could completely change if Dwayne, you have um, you know a pension at age sixty that's paying you eighty thousand dollars a year, you know, and you want a hundred thousand bucks, so. You know, now you only need twenty thousand dollars from the overall portfolio. Then it gets into a little bit different type of discussion. Well, well it does, and so now I, I think we'd have a more, a lot more latitude. So you don't need to take a lot of risk. So if you want to be conservative, ten, twenty percent equities, then fine. On the other hand, because you don't necessarily need this money, what's it for? Is it for the kids? Is it for charity? Maybe you take a little bit more risk because you can afford to. Right, and then or, or maybe you look at it and you say, you know what? I don't know. Maybe hundred. That's the that's the baseline. Yeah, maybe some years may- it's going to be one hundred fifty because we want to yeah. go on a cruise or we want right. to do this. And I don't know. Listen to Susie Orman. You probably need thirty million <laughs> because you're going to yeah, have a don't need catas- catastrophic event that right. of course is going to happen to you. And you're so gonna- so I guess the point is there's a lot of variables and we don't really know your situation fully. But just based upon what we know, probably the forty to sixty percent equities would probably be a good place to be. Now, Dwayne. Now let's let's take this uh, to the next level here. 
Alan. Wow. Okay, we're going deep. <clears throat> yeah, because he still has seven years. He's 53 years old. He's got $1.5 million in retirement accounts. He never specified, all right, what type of retirement accounts are these? Is it all IRAs? Is it all 401ks? Is there any Roth in here? Um, or does he have a brokerage account that he's labeling for retirement? Or is everything in a retirement account? So if he continues to save the 24-5 in the retirement accounts, it gets 6% over the next seven years. We just did the calculation approximately, roughly, it's no guarantees, blah, 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 of about $2.4 bucks. Right. Well, if that's all in a retirement account, that's all going to be taxable income. If you want to spend $100,000 a year, all right, well, then now... Hey, you're going to be in a little bit higher tax bracket if you want versus if you wanted to spend, let's say, sixty thousand dollars a year, and then you're going to have Social Security on top of that, and if you have any other pensions, all of that kind of layers on top of each other, where that could pop them up into even a higher tax bracket than he is now. So that's where the diversification of taxes come in. You have seven years. So if 24-5 is that savings number, all right, how much of that is he going to be putting into retirement accounts? How much should he be putting into Roth? Does a Roth conversion make sense? Can he broaden that $1.5 million out to, to get a little bit more diversification tax-wise? Because if that's the case, well, then he, he doesn't necessarily have to accumulate that much because a lot of it is going to him, not to taxes. Yeah, and that's a really good point because right now that the 24% tax bracket goes up to $315,000 taxable income for a married couple. If you had that kind of income last year, 2017, you were probably subject to alternative minimum tax and you probably weren't at 35% effective rate. So this is 11% lower tax for many. And so it's and then you think about well, you know, at this tax law, at least at the moment, it's going to sunset. So 2026, we go back to the old rates where you might be in the 25 or 28% bracket or worse. So it's like, I totally agree with that. It's like, make sure you've got tax diversification in addition to the the savings plan. Right. So he needs a savings plan. How much is he going to save? Where is he going to save it? Right. From a tax perspective. And then from there, what does that allocation look like? I think he's skipping a beat here by saying, well, show me the allocation first. Well, no, let's look at, all right, well, what's your fixed income sources, what's your income going to look like in seven years, where's that money held right now, and then not break it out a little bit more from a tax perspective. And then from there, that's when you can start really dialing in um, your overall allocation. So uh, Big D from... It's a great question. Denver. Dwayne from Denver. Mile, mile High mile City. Mile High. Yep. You All been right. there? Uh, no. Yeah. I have not. I've been there many, many times. I know you have. It's a great place. You're a big fan. Yeah. The buffs. Yeah, buffs. Rockies, whatever. Video of Joe and Big Al answering some of these email questions is now available in the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. So send yours in to info at purefinancial.com and the fellows may reply to you directly. They might answer you here in the podcast. I may email you a recording of their response or your question might be turned into an educational video. No matter how you do it, you're helping thousands of people who have the same question as you just by emailing info at purefinancial.com. So thank you for that and keep the questions coming. Now, what was that that Joe mentioned about Susie Orman saying you'd need millions of dollars to retire? Hey, you know, your favorite financial guru is Susie Orman, right? Oh, yeah. I've always said that. (laughs) (laughs) When did that come about? (laughs) I remember seeing her so many years ago thinking, boy, that's one thing I'll never be as a financial planner. (laughs) I I love the way someone asks a question. Reject it. You can't do that. <laughs> She's back in the little limelight lately. I missed it. You're not missing much. <laughs> how how you, did you notice that? Well, because I listen to other podcasts. Okay. 
And so she's been a guest on a few of the podcasts okay. that she's I'm trying a, to get uh, back in. Well, she, she she updated her new book. Ah. And she asked to come on our show. I said, forget about it. She asked, yeah. No, she begged. That's, yeah, she that's, never heard of us. Yeah, no, no doubt. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was like the thousandth, that one thousandth, if I could say that show, that she might have wanted to come on. <laughs> oh, but they're talking about the fire moment. We have a lot of fire We do. Listeners. Yeah. You know, fire, financial independence, retired Retire early. early. Yes, I know um, what that is. She's like, no, sucks. Don't even think about it because you need like fifty million to retire. <laughs> fifty million. She's crazy. She's out of her mind. Yeah. And they were like, well, don't you think maybe a couple million dollar portfolio and a decent withdrawal rate? Paula Pant. She was on her show. Got it. Um, yeah. She's on um, our good friend Joe Salcihi Stacking Benjamin yes, show. Yes, right. I believe she has her own podcast. I've never yeah. listened to it. I should though. Well, it's afford anything, I believe. I'm giving her a plug. Paula Pant is afford anything. Yes, yes. Paula Pant asked her, "What do you think of the fire movement?" She said, "I hate it. I hate it. I hate it." Really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that well, was pretty good impression there yeah. too. It just gave me chills. Just, just like, like I was about to like run that. the hell out of the studio. Well, I'll tell you, I like it. I, I think it's a great movement. Yeah, so do I. And I'll tell you what. Here's my opinion. It has nothing to do with fifty million or five million. It has to do with the relationship between your spending and what you have saved. That's all it comes it's down simple to. Simple mathematics. Simple math. You know what? If you can, if you can get by on pennies, then maybe you could get by on hundred thousand. Yeah, or the whatever. people that are doing the fire movement, they get along with pennies. They do because they're saving like eighty-five percent of their. That's how home. they can retire at thirty-five. They're spending almost nothing. Right, and they live and, in a little house. Yeah, they do. Very, they very just, tiny house. They drink slits. Tiny car. <laughs> no, I think they drink water. Yeah, and I could not be a fire guy. <laughs> I'm, I'm already past. I'm 44 years old. <laughs> yeah, you missed it. I missed it. Yeah, you're, still, you're still working. What an inspiration you are. <laughs> no. One of the things I learned at FinCon is that there's a documentary about the fire movement coming out. It's called Playing with Fire. And, of course, we are going to have the uh, guys that are making that documentary on the show. Oh, no. I, I can't wait for yes. that. Anyway. I'm I, I see why they passed me on. I, I like the I was fire 40 movement. 40 under 40. Yeah. Well, you're, that was old news, brother. <laughs> I didn't even make 60 over 60. <laughs> I don't think there is such a thing. I don't think there's so. There's not that many people over 60 still doing <laughs> what I do. <laughs> They're over there retired. They, they figured this out a long time ago. <laughs> well, uh, but I want to get into the fire movement. I'll be the oldest fire guy. Yes. <laughs> I retired at 85 <laughs> because I lived on pennies. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be a new inspiration. Yes, you will this, be. I'll be talking to you, the generation be. after the millennials. Yes, what, whatever they the next one, whatever that one is. Y or Z? No, already uh, that's already. Yeah, used. you'll get you'll get on the road It'll show. Be the double A. <laughs> yes. Generation. Oh, yeah, the road yes. show. <laughs> yep, we'll so, be a speaking tour. <laughs> Big Al's fire I'll, I'll need it for my retirement. Oh my, yes. <laughs> oh my God, that's funny. That's funny. That's what happened to Mark Twain. Hey. Yeah, I did hear about that. He, yeah. he went broke. He was a pretty aggressive investor. Yeah, he was not yeah. a very good investor. Yeah, as it turned out. Yes. I mean, well, because he, he went for it. And when you go for it all in, it doesn't always work out. Right. And I think that's the problem where some individuals are experiencing now with this volatility. Right? Yeah. You well, get a little sure. scared, you get out. That's exactly what happened. But Mark Twain just rolled that thing all the way down to the zero. Right. And, and he wasn't in a globally diversified portfolio. No. He was looking at no. You know, he would single... he would he would find some startup. Oh, this is the one. 
right. put all his money in. And, um, and it didn't happen. So then he had to write some more books. Right. Well, then he went on the road show and then he did a, um, a, a comedy tour. Yeah. Across right. the globe. Yeah. <laughs> because he, <laughs> he was broke. He, he needed, needed some to. money. So he didn't know about the fire movie. <laughs> yes, he did. He did not. It wasn't uh, invented then. That's it for us today. Thanks for listening. For Big Al Clopine, I'm Joe Anderson. The show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. Mark Twain's and Warren Buffett's investing foibles were discussed at length in our interview with Michael Batnick back in July. If you missed it, the link is in today's show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Special thanks to today's guests, our own Brian Perry and Larry Swedro. Larry's three tips for being like Warren Buffett in times of market volatility. Look at history, rebalance, and tax loss harvest. You'll also find links to Larry's latest articles in today's show notes. Subscribe to the podcast at yourmoneyyourwealth.com or you can find us on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts, all of which are linked in the show notes. And now you can listen to the Your Money, Your Wealth podcast on YouTube as well. Email your money questions to info at purefinancial.com or call 888-994-6257. Listen next time for more Your Money, Your Wealth presented by Pure Financial Advisors. For your free financial assessment, visit purefinancial.com. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investor advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. I think YouTube's taking over the world. What do you think?